Hi, I'm Sandy Laycox, Editor-in-Chief of Leaders Edge. In this conversation, I talk with Amrit David, Managing Director at Barclays Investment Bank. Amrit works with management teams, private equity firms, and alternative capital providers across a variety of transactions in the insurance brokerage. We discuss his work on the Ryan Specialty IPO, the use of SPACs as an alternative to capital, and other recent trends in M&A. Give it a listen. Amrit, it's so great to be back here with you. Last we spoke, it was early 2020, right before the pandemic started. So I hope that you and your family have been well and weathered this okay. Sandy, thanks for asking. Yeah, no, it, it, it has been um, an extraordinary 18 months for everybody, right? So yeah, we're, we're all doing well. Lots of adjusting to, uh, to, to hybrid working models and masks, but thankfully the, the family is healthy, safe, vaccinated. So um, we're doing the best we can in this. And uh, I hope the same for you and all your readers. Yes, thank you so much. I appreciate that. And and we're all trying to get through as best we can. Um, so, so while we're on the topic of COVID, we can just start right there. From, from your point of view, how has it changed investors' perspectives of the industry? Yeah, look, I think the one word I use to describe it is resilience. Um, and it only furthered uh, investors, both public and private's perceptions of the resilience of the insurance industry and the insurance distribution industry um, to be very pointed about it. I think when we started uh, the pandemic, you know, people were less concerned about the PNC side and what that means. And they were very focused about the employee benefits and the implications for, for coverages, for payrolls, for, for how big would that be? Um, but I think that all moved on pretty quickly as folks got comfortable with the risk parameters um, that we were facing here. Um, and the result was, was really twofold. One, um, a real clear understanding of the importance the insurance brokerage industry plays in, um, in helping businesses um, manage their risk profile. And, and I look at all the seminars and conferences and, and tutorials that your members provided to small and medium and even large businesses um, kind of at the early stages of the pandemic, which was a huge value add for everybody um, and help folks get comfortable in, in understanding their risks and, and what was what was likely to happen. Um, and then second, you know, with that coaching and that perspective and the resilience of the business model, investors just really furthered their um belief in the stability of both the revenue and the cash flow profiles of the business so when 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 you kind of put those things together i i think it's shone extraordinarily well in in helping people manage risks but then also investors really understood that dynamic even more so and um and 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 as a result you've seen a much more um aggressive i'd say re-rating of the industry as folks uh, recognize that that value add so how much of this do you think is sustainable for the long term? Um, I think a good portion, right? I mean, if you look at kind of the valuations or what drives valuations, uh, first and foremost, you know, I, I look at kind of macro activity and, and the level of economic activity. And you know, I'm personally of the belief that between um, the COVID relief, between the infrastructure, between whatever happens in D.C. with all this budget stuff, um, we are at the early innings of a multi-year um, economic kind of expansion 
And I think one that'll be um, likely unprecedented, at least in, in my generation and in, in my work history, um, when I look at what, what, what we're going to go through. So I think that will drive growth and profitability across the board here as we kind of look to reinvent the economy. But the second is um, the, the, this concept of appreciation and value add that the industry provides, I think, has only got uh, furthered. And I think you're going to see um, um, more and more investors appreciate that and then start to look at you know the insurance insurance brokerage industry in a much more favorable light with this long-term re-rating. We've seen valuations move up. We've seen multiples move up, but I think that's highly warranted in the context of, of what the business does. And I think people like RIAs, people like these ancillary services, which, which tend to trade and value at higher multiples, will be part of where insurance distribution goes over the, the medium to long term here. So along those lines, we saw in 2020, um, despite the beginnings of the, the pandemic and the height of it happening and um, a brief slowdown in the second quarter of last year, brokerage M&A continued to break records last year with number of deals and, as you mentioned, very high valuations. Um, so what was the impact additionally of COVID on, on the transactions? And are you seeing that continue into this year? I think that continues. Um, I think that continues into 2021. Um, one, as I mentioned, I think this this economic activity um, will continue to drive drive that broadly. I think the um, the the growth we're going to see will only push valuations further. And and candidly, you know, there's also some of this noise around tax reform. Um, and that's bringing many folks into the market that um, would otherwise not be there. And I think I think that's going to potentially drive some transaction activity um, into the third and fourth quarters here, um, which we otherwise might not have seen. So thematically overall on M&A, in addition to sort of the, the COVID, um, you know, effects, what are you seeing across the board there? Um, so I, th I think there's a few types of um, transactions happening. Um, one, um, we expect to see the continued um, consolidation of the market by um, the larger businesses, um, and that no, that thematic has continued been um, perpetuated for the last 15 years or so. I expect that to continue. Um, secondly. I do think um, the the private equity interest um, in the business and sector um, continues and is extraordinarily robust. Um, and I think you you we've we've seen that with new private equity firms coming into the market um, and looking to support uh, management teams as they've kind of built out. Um, businesses and, and and kind of execute on a on, on a highly proven strategy. Um, I also think um, in that in that same vein that has driven valuations because there's there's more private equity guys than there have been um, platform that platforms for them to invest in. Um, and I think that you know we've talked about that for many years. I think that has only gotten more concentrated. Um, so I expect that to continue as well. 
Um, and then lastly, um, which is an emerging one, but 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 a harder discussion um, is, is is potential mergers. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there was obviously a, a large one in the industry which got called off, but um, you know, some of these mid-market or or, or larger platforms need, need to think really hard about their strategic future, their direction, and what they're going to do. Um, but there's been obviously increased talk about that, and um, you know, it'll be really hard. But let, but let's see if it can get done. So on sort of the flip side of that, we recently saw the um, Aon Willis Towers Watson planned merger scrapped a few months ago due to an impasse with the Department of Justice. So what do you think that means for larger M&A and in brokerage in particular? Yeah, well, look, I I think from a larger M&A point, and this is kind of across all industries, I think it was a clear message that the current administration was trying to send to the market. Um, And I even think the prior administration had had a similar view, which is um, the creation of monopolies is not something that they're going to, um, or oligopolies is not something that they're going to um, sanction or easily sanction. So I I think that was kind of a a shot across the bow for the broad M&A market for folks to think about. In brokerage, look, I, I think there's there's a lot of implications for what this means more broadly. Obviously, we saw, we saw you know the the sale of Willis Reed to Gallagher and that get completed. Um, I think you will continue to see a very aggressive. Um, uh, we, we we use the terminology in the industry war for talent, and I don't just mean talent out of uh, out of out of one or two of these businesses. I mean across the board, um, as folks who have the scale. Um, look to build um, real expertise and, and capabilities. So I, I think that will on, on, only perpetuate itself. And I do think um, folks will look for greater scale. Now, I think there's less of that impact in, in the middle market space, whether it's retail or wholesale. So I expect that to continue. Um, but I think more and more of these folks recognize um, the importance of scale, the importance of institutionalizing their businesses, and um, and the term, terminology I've used in the past, which is building something for 150 years. Um, I think many more management teams and folks are focused on, on that long term. Mm-hmm. Okay, so let's talk about some exciting news. Um, you recently led the IPO of Ryan's specialty group. And um, I'd love to hear anything you want to share with our with our readers and our listeners about the deal. Yeah, well, look, uh, first and foremost, uh, congrats to Pat um, and the RSG team um, on a on a fantastic transaction. Uh, We were happy to assist them around that. But the the effort um, they've put in over the years um, in building the business and the IPO. Um, has just been has been justly rewarded. So so kudos and congratulations to them. But I, I think there's really two interesting um, takeaways that um, I came away with from the transaction. Think that your re- your readers might appreciate. One is <clears throat> this was the first IPO of an insurance wholesaler, um, and you know we had to go through a meaningful amount of kind of market education as to what a wholesaler is what an mga is um yes you know there are a few of the public companies that have portions of this in their business but 
um, when, when it's 100% of what you do and where you where you play in the insurance ecosystem value chain. Um, for us insurance geeks, we get it. We understand the, the unique dynamics about it. But for the public investor, <clears throat> it was a um, it was a very different part of the ecosystem and value chain that they've never seen before. Um, I thought the education process and informing them about the business and um, the long-term value proposition was pretty interesting. It, it, it was a lot of work and one we kind of um, had, had, had to get our heads around, but I thought that was, that was really cool um, as, as they thought about it. Second, um, and you know, we've seen this in some more recent insurance deals in general, but um, the investor interest um, you know, continues to be extraordinarily strong um, for the right company and the right opportunity. Um, you know, there aren't many mid-market growth opportunities in financial services for public investors at this point. And, you know, many FIG assets are balance sheet exposed, whether that's cat risk or mortgage lending or credit lending. So you're actually taking underwriting, you're taking underlying credit risk. Um, that's not the case in, 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 you know, an insurance distribution business. And when you have something that fits the fig bucket with real stable revenues and cash flows and economics, um, investors really have understood and gravitated to it. And I, you know, going back to my earlier comments on, on, on why valuations in the sector have continued to rally. Those are two uh, really great points. And, you know, the, the education piece is interesting, right? Because we don't often think about that from in, inside the industry, but it's, it's, it's vastly complicated with all these different types of distribution vehicles. So that's a, that's a really interesting point. And if you were able to sort of easily sum that up for people, I'd love to hear how you did it. Um, yeah, look, uh, it, it, it was complicated. Um, there, there was a nice schematic we put together, which is which is in the public document, so folks can see it. But you know, we 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 were as visual as we can with um, where they where they play in the ecosystem, the value add they provide, um, so that folks really understood it. And, um, and 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 we're playing on broader macro thematics too, <clears throat> the growth in the ENS market, um, the the. You know things like cyber and terrorism obviously get attention, but people, but it does drive people's intuition and understanding. You know there's an increasing complexity of risk in this world, and one, you need folks to counsel you through that risk. Two, um, people who have the expertise in helping you manage those risks um, are the people who are going to be long-term winners. Yep, yep. It, that's 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 fascinating. I'm gonna have to check out the the schematic as well. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. Additionally, on this topic, um, so we, you mentioned, you know, the middle market. There's there's not a ton of places for them to go. Do you think that other brokerages will be prompted to consider an IPO that may be in the same sort of space? Yeah. Well, look, um, I I don't know if it prompts action. Um, but I think it definitely needs to be part of the conversation for everybody in the insurance distribution world, more so than it ever was before. Um, and, 
you know, going public is um, never a <clears throat> easy conversation, and it's an extraordinarily personal decision for many companies, and it has to be um, the the right thing for that company and that management team. Um, otherwise, this is nothing that's not going to work, and sometimes it doesn't work for many, and and that is and that, and that I think is still a lot of the, the, the default path. But, you know, if, if, if someone is going to consider that path, um, that there are really important, you know, considerations around it, which is there's time, there's significant cost. Um, and as a public company, there's the, you know, the pressure of quarterly earnings and, and the SOX reporting and, and leverage limitations, et cetera. Um, so it, it, it's not it's not a free option and it's not a panacea for all, but for but for some it might make sense. Um, and what it what it really comes down to is, do we think there's a value valuation differential in the private market versus the public market that justifies um, that cost and that time and that effort to make it worthwhile? So does does the IPO discount um, you know, overcome what could be an M&A premium, um, I think becomes, like I said at the beginning here, a very personal decision for for many of those folks across the industry thinking about it. Mm-hmm. That makes a lot of sense. Um, so let's talk about SPACs for a minute. A lot of, we see them in the news recently. Um, we've seen them in the insurance industry recently. We saw Haggerty, um, a specialty insurer, um, forming with a, an, a SPAC to go public. Do you think that this is something more companies should consider as an alternative to a traditional IPO? Um, look, SPACs are getting a lot of attention today. Um, and they do, in some instances, serve um, a very real purpose. And like an IPO, I think SPACs also should be part of the conversation for folks. Um, but that is not to say um, it is an absolutely slam dunk for many. SPACs are logical um, alternatives or plans if, <clears throat> one, there's a real benefit for a company to market forward projections, right? Um, and if, if there's a transition in the business model, or if there's a change in trajectory for the earnings and you need to really explain to the market why, um, that, that's what, that, that you know, SPACs offer you the ability to directly engage with investors on, on a forward look. The second is, um, you know, if there's a need for a significant pool of capital, more so than you could get in a traditional IPO, um, to allow something such as deleveraging or the likes. Um, that's... You know that's that's a tougher one to justify because you can do big IPOs, um, but but you know they, they they serve a purpose there. And the third thing is, um, does the SPAC you're partnering with bring something special to the business, um, additive to the business that is going to further its strategy, um, whether that's uh, board members, whether that's industry knowledge, whether that's relationships and context, I, I think you're going to have to need, you, you need to address kind of all three of those um, to do that. But, but, that, but that doesn't come for free. 
right? SPACs are, are, are more dilutive than a traditional IPO. They have more cost involved in them between the founder shares and the warrants. And the nature of a, of a SPAC transaction also means there's typically less institutional support in the market for a company um, than there is in a traditional IPO. So look, I, I think folks need to be very smart and aware of the kind of pros and cons and dynamics here um, and, um, and, and take a kind of a comprehensive approach to it um, as they evaluate you know, a SPAC or, or, or if a SPAC should be part of the conversation. Um, and, and I will also point out, look, we've, we've had some of these more recent InsurTech SPACs um, that are not necessarily trading well, um, and insurers and investors are, <clears throat> excuse me, investors are somewhat um, um, hesitant at this point, given given some of the most most recent experience. Yep, that's a that's a great breakdown for us. I think of of the difference, and and true that we have seen um, some insure techs not necessarily live up to potentially what was thought originally. So we'll, we'll just have to keep watching those. Um, on that note, and this is my last one for you, um, you know, we've talked a, a lot about ITOs, SPACs, and insurtechs, all of which falls into your purview and the work that you do. Um, can you just give us some thoughts on recent high valuations um, for insurtechs? We've seen a lot of billion dollar valuations and what's up ahead for that group? Yeah, look, um, a couple things to unpack there. Um, look, I continue to believe um, that technology will be important, an important game changer for this industry. Um, and and when I say this industry, I mean insurance in general. Um, I look at the innovation and um, efficiency drives that traditional insurance companies are going to need. Um, and I look at the customer experience they're going to need to offer to their, you know, for example, personal lines policyholders, right? Um, our phones have, have changed meaningfully our interaction with many things across financial services, but insurance has been slow to the game here. Um, we've probably ended up in a spot where there's more hype than reality for some of these situations today. But I think the long-term thematic of driving that efficiency, improving the customer experience continues to resonate. I think in, in the insurance distribution space, um, you know, finding ways to empower producers and, and, and brokers um, to kind of affect the sale, to help companies manage their um, exposures um, needs some real um, innovation and drive. And I think that'll drive a lot of things going forward. So I continue to be um, bullish in general on technology, driving the industry forward and helping us reinvent this stuff. Um, because I do think it's, it's really needed. And those who are going to be at the front of this will, um, will be the long-term winners. Um, to the point on uh, on these valuations, look, I'm, I'm talking to you now in late August, and 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 who knows where this again where this will be um, by uh, by September October. But we are in a in a very dynamic valuation environment today, and I think a lot of the companies, that at least that are public out there, have had very difficult quarters recently, 
um, and investors are trying to understand what is your real growth trajectory and what is your path to profitability. And until we get a little bit more clarity around that, I think those, those two elements are going to weigh on valuations. Um, and hopefully that, you know, that, that transitions over time. But um, as, as that becomes clearer, I think, I think the, the continued long-term um, need for that innovation will become apparent. Um, but you know, may, maybe we're in a period right now where it's going to take a little bit more time for that to be clearer. Well, Amrit, this has been so great to chat with you. I always love talking about what you're seeing from your perspective. I think it's great for our readers to really hear that. So thank you again for joining me. And I always look forward to the next conversation with you. Thanks a lot, Sandy. No, I always appreciate this. This is this is great. I always love connecting with your readers and um, I'm happy to talk to anyone who has any questions and always happy to talk to you again, too. That was Amrit David of Barclays Investment Bank. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to check us out in SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, and Spotify. Spotify.